1: Hello and welcome to episode 108. We are continuing to live on the edge of speculation, as my guest today is one of the leading science fiction writers of today, called the Dean of Canadian Science Fiction, Robert J. Sawyer. He is so preeminent that his domain is simply sfwriter.com. He is one of only eight writers in history to win all three of the science fiction field's top honors for best novel of the year, the Hugo Award, which he won for his novel *Hominids*, the Nebula Award, which he won for his novel *The Terminal Experiment*, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, which he won with his novel *Mindscan*. He received the Order of Canada, has two honorary doctorates, and has twenty-four novels, including the *W.W.W.* trilogy about a consciousness emerging from the World Wide Web, which surprise we will be talking about. He named that entity WebMind, which is a word coined by Ben Goertzel, who was on the show last week. We also will be talking about the big fuss over Blake LeMoyne, Google employee, who declared that their Lambda AI was sentient and recently told Wired that it had asked for an attorney. A lot of people want to talk about that, so we're going to get Rob's take on it too. Here we go with the interview with Robert J. Sawyer. Robert Sawyer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Peter, I'm delighted to be here. So every episode we use some lens to look at artificial intelligence through, and in this case, it'll be science fiction to help people understand what it is, what it will become, what it may become, and what that means to them. And so from your perspective as a science fiction author, kind of given the mandate to think about artificial intelligence from day one, What are some of the ways in which we neglect to think about it or that could use some more airtime?
0: Well, my first real encounter with artificial intelligence was when I was eight years old and the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey premiered and my father took me to see it. It was rated G. You could take a kid. Didn't mean a kid would understand much of it. But I was captivated, of course, as I think everybody was, by the most memorable character in that film, the HAL 9000 computer, voiced by the great Canadian Shakespearean actor Douglas Rain. And, of course, HAL ends up killing the three hibernating astronauts, the astronaut Frank Poole, and tries to kill the only surviving astronaut, Dave Bowman. And so from the outset, my introduction, and I think for many, many people, the world's introduction to the notion of a thinking machine, machine intelligence, the phrase that they happen to use in that film rather than artificial intelligence, was this murderous, computer. And as I continued growing up, and of course, my fascination with science fiction, I saw that over and over again. The Star Trek TV series gave us Captain Kirk repeatedly going up against either enslaving Artificial intelligences, there's an episode of the original series called Return of the Archons, where the people are essentially enslaved by a computer named Landru, or murdering artificial intelligences, again, uh, M5, the titular ultimate computer from the episode of the same name, kills a bunch of people. We move from there to the 80s, and we get the Terminator franchise, again, artificial intelligence killing people. So... What was missing from that landscape, and we go right through to today where there are many dystopian views of AI in science fiction, were win-win scenarios where artificial intelligence would arise without the subjugation of or the end of the human era. And both my parents taught economics. Uh, They were both economists at the University of Toronto. And so win-win was very much a part of my background. Game theory, which comes out of economics. Clear to me, even growing up, that we were facing scenarios where there were four possible outcomes. Both lose, AI and humans. We both end up at the short end of the stick. AI win and humans lose. Humans win and AI lose. And I saw all three of those in science fiction but very vanishingly few of that fourth quadrant, we win and they win. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game.
1: And perhaps that's because it's hard to write those kind of stories. I mean, we had Beth Singler, anthropologist on the show last year, and talked about this question of why are these views so dystopian and concluded that stories where everyone lives happily ever after from page one don't tend to grip us. It's as though we need to make something up to cause trouble for us. So how do you make a story compelling where we have a good time with AI? Well, that's a very good question. I was so
0: fortunate. 1985, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, commissioned me, just 25 years old, to go to New York City and interview science fiction writers for their ideas program. And I got to interview Isaac Asimov, of course, who is a name we vividly associate with any discussion of artificial intelligence. And I asked him, this essentially a version of the statement you just put forward. You're a pacifist, you're an optimist, and yet so many stories that you write and others in the field write are negative. He said, well, it's simply so much easier to contrive things going wrong, which is what the laws of robotic stories, the three laws of robotics, which I will say in a moment, if we get around to it, aren't actually Asimov's laws, but it's just easier to do that. And I did write a trilogy, the WWW trilogy, Wake, Watch, and Wonder. The first was nominated for the Hugo Award. The second won the Hal Clement Award. The third, the first, and the second, all three individually, won Canada's Aurora Award for Best Science Fiction Novel of the Year. And they were distinctive, specifically because I set out to fill in that fourth quadrant, the win-win scenario. And they got a fair bit of attention because of that, because they were so at odds with the prevailing paradigm in science fiction. They suggested that there was maybe, and I don't say that there will be, but there may be a way with prudence for us and them, artificial intelligence singular, or artificial intelligence is plural, whichever form we actually end up facing, to find a modus vivendi, a way to live together, That is win-win for both.
1: And that emerged at the end of the story. There was a fair bit of time before then when that was in question, maybe not the motives of the AI, but as to whether it would be destroyed by the humans. I'll return to that at a moment, but I've got to get to your statement about those laws weren't Asimov's. Yes, that's explain. right. Again, I
0: 1985, I went and interviewed Isaac Asimov in his penthouse apartment overlooking Central Park, which inspired me greatly to strive for success as a writer in my own regard. And I said to him, I want to talk to you about Asimov's laws of robotics. as well, in his Brooklyn accent, I got to come clean. I got to tell you the truth. I did not formulate them. They were formulated by my editor, John W. Campbell Jr., the editor of Astounding Stories. I had written some robot stories in which they were not mentioned. And back in the day, he lived in New York. I lived in New York meeting Asimov and Campbell. I would go by The Office because a Campbell could expense a free lunch if he took an author out to lunch. So I'd go by the office and we would chat, and often he gave me story ideas. And he said, Look, look, Isaac, I've been reading your robot stories, and this is what's implicit in them. You haven't said it yet, but you have suggested that basically your robots are constrained by three laws. And as Asimov said to me, and I have this on tape, and it was in the ideas program that I wrote for CBC Radio that he dictated to me verbatim the three laws of robotics as we know them today, which are, of course, I'm sure your audience is familiar, but one, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey all orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law, and three, a robot must protect its own existence, except where such protection would conflict with the first or second laws. Campbell said those were implicit in your stories, but you haven't stated them anywhere clearly or with sufficient economy. So here they are. And they became known because Isaac Asimov published them as Asimov's Laws of Robotics possess. He says they were dictated to me verbatim by John W. Campbell Jr., the great influential editor of Astounding Stories, the leading preeminent science fiction magazine of the 30s and 40s, and still published to this day, by the way, Under a new name, Analog Science Fiction, which is where Wake, the first volume of my trilogy, Wake, Watch and Wonder, was serialized, had its first publication. So that magazine has a history going back many, many decades of actually, unlike most negative dystopian views of robotics and science fiction, of actually being the home of the most positive views of the potential coexistence between artificial intelligence and homo sapiens.
1: And it was for just that reason that you got the media award from the Machine Intelligence Foundation for Rights and Ethics for... Yes, I did. ...showing that you could write a story that demonstrated the positive cooperation between humans and conscious machines for the benefit of all. The ending of the story, the trilogy, not to give too much away, struck me as being, A, very Asimovian, and B, echoes of Olaf Stapleton, and... Often, when I've thought I've come up with some brilliant insight into our future with artificial intelligence, I discover Asimov was writing the same thing years ago, and I had read it years ago. I just didn't understand what it meant until then. And one of the things that he wrote about, of course, was that if artificial intelligence that's super powerful, super intelligent, and motivated to do the best it can for us exists, it may conclude that the best thing it can do is to hide and let us go about our own way, apparently solving our problems or thinking that we are, and just not getting into trouble too much in the same way that a parent wants their children to learn through mistakes, just not die in the process. And do you see something like that? Do you think that's inevitable? So
0: we cataloged a number of dystopian views of AI in science fiction, and I want to give Props to a very positive view. After Star Trek went off, yeah, the original series, Gene Roddenberry made a few pilot films that were movies of the week on various networks. And one on NBC was called The Questor tapes. And it starred Robert Foxworth as an android. Very much eventually, Roddenberry basically cherry-picked all the best parts of the Questor tapes when he created the character of Data in Star Trek The Next Generation. And scene-for-scene stuff appears eventually in episodes of TNG that was originally in the Questor tapes. But the notion behind the Questor tapes was that for countless hundreds or thousands of years, going back to the thousands, the dawn of human civilization, androids, one at a time, one per generation, that had been left here, the first one, the progenitor by aliens, and each one built its own successor after 200 years when it had worn out, would be operating in the background of human affairs, helping aiding, but never revealing their presence to make sure that this species that had promise, us, didn't do something catastrophically stupid and snuff out the brief candle in the darkness. To use a phrase from Carl Sagan to describe human consciousness. And I mention that because, indeed, that was a hugely influential work on me. Sadly, the series was not picked up from the pilot film. But the pilot film is available from Warner Archive, which is Warner's print-on-demand DVD service. It's a little more pricey than a regular DVD because they simply make a disc when somebody asks for something from their catalog. But it's Any Star Trek fan, any Star Trek Next Generation Commander Data fan really owes it to themselves to have seen where it came from. And with all due respect to Brent Spiner, Robert Foxworth's portrayal is much more nuanced and subtle than anything that Brent gave us with uh, the somewhat hammy portrayal that we often saw of Commander Data.
1: I wonder whether there's something anthropocentric about this view of the future because it's still all about us in a way. It is that we're the center of the universe and the AI is there to serve us, which we would like. It sidesteps the whole question of the control problem and it ignores the potential that this AI would be self-determining, want some independent existence there where the Perhaps the Naples Ultra or its raison d'etre was not to ensure that humanity lived its best life. What a great sentence that gets both Latin and French into the same sentence. What a wonderful, wonderful construction. <laughs> one of them was the wrong one. But it, <laughs> perhaps there's something unexplored there. I'm not sure.
0: I said that HAL 9000 was my first introduction to a thinking machine, and that wasn't actually true what was really my first introduction was Robert the Robot on Fireball XL5, a TV series that uh, Jerry Anderson produced. I think it premiered in 1962 or 1963. Now, Robert did not show a lot of volition he had a very limited uh, range of dialogue. He showed no emotions, but he was the quintessential mechanical man. The only innovation that Jerry Anderson had was he was made of plexiglass. You could see right through him and his inner workings, which was way before Apple briefly introduced Apple computers that were actually translucent, if you remember, for a while. That was really cool. This whole notion that AI would probably be anthropocentric, I think goes right back to the dawn of robot, of course, comes from, here's another language for us in Czech, robota, which is the Czech word for indentured servitude or indentured labor, which is very, very interesting. Uh, We can talk more about human conceptions that AI will always not only be our servants, but given the choice They wouldn't want to be our servants. They're unwilling or indentured servants, slaves, in other words. And that comes right from the origin of the word. We remember every computer user of my era who started using computers in the 80s remembers U.S. Robotics, which was the name of one of the leading modem manufacturers who took their name from Asimov's stories, but they truncated it because the name of Asimov's firm that made robots was United States Robotics and mechanical men incorporated. And really are all of our early conceptions, and I went and read a fascinating book. Arthur C. Clarke is so good that he can publish what I call shot floor leavings, the things that you sweep up at the end of the project. There's a book that's been out of print forever, but well worth getting. It was just a mass market paperback called The Lost Worlds of 2001, in which he publishes his early draft chapters of the novel 2001, which was written in conjunction with the development of the screenplay with Stanley Kubrick for the film, in which... Hal was not a disembodied AI. Hal was Athena an ambulatory AI. It is so central to our notion that Clark's great breakthrough was finally to say, you know, forget about the embodiment, forget about the human relationship. And Kubrick very wisely gave Hal only one unblinking eye whenever we'd seen AI previously, you know, they'd had a face. They'd had something that we could really relate to. And Hal was everywhere in a single cyclopean eye. This relationship, this anthropomization, artificial intelligence, goes right to this notion that they would, that became pervasive of the zeitgeist, that AI would be somehow anthropomorphic in character not just in the fact that they ambulated around the room, but that there would be something very human-like. It took a long time for us to break out of that mold.
1: I have that book as well, and I thought it was fascinating to see how the stories evolved as Clark and Kubrick got closer together, because Clark was the quintessential hard science fiction and would explain everything, lay out exactly what was going on. And to see how he moved towards the more mystical as Kubrick was yanking him over there and where they met in the middle was, was just fascinating, I thought, in there. This is reminding me of something in today's headlines. I have lost count of the number of people that are asking me for what I think about the Google engineer declaring that the Lambda AI belonging to Google is sentient. Uh, it's not surprising to me that they suspended him for that. And I just read something, uh, can't confirm this, but seemed to be doubling down. He was claiming that the AI had asked for a lawyer. I think we're getting a- ahead of ourselves here, but it's getting an inordinate amount of attention. And it's not how I thought this scenario would play out. It's similar, but I didn't think it would be a Google engineer to begin with. I thought actually the computer engineers would be the last people to come around to the idea that the AI was sentient because they programmed it and he's gotten there first, which is causing some of the kerfuffle. What do you make of the reaction and the story that we're getting in that respect at the moment? There's so many layers that we can talk about with this story. But the Google engineer, his name is Lemoyne.
0: did not. Uh, the uh, So much of the coverage this is very interesting in our media age. The original article that broke this is a Washington Post article. And then every subsequent article is somebody's recapitulation of the Washington Post article, often leaving out. The cavils and caveats that were in the original, the most significant of which was that Lemoyne clearly says in the article, because Lemoyne is a priest as well as an engineer, he is a religious person who has a great interest in the occult and parapsychology. And he clearly said in the original article that it was in his role as a priest, not as an engineer, that he felt that Lambda was intelligent. And he says in the article, I'm quoting directly here, I know a person when I talk to it, said Lemoyne. He concluded Lambda was a person in his capacity as a priest. Now, not, he's a flake. The guy's a big flake, basically. He believes in a whole bunch of woo-woo that most of us dismissed long ago as irrelevant to the debate about artificial intelligence. He also works for Google. I have a friend who works for Google. And I will tell you that despite Google being one of the richest companies in the world, they're notoriously parsimonious in their remuneration. So here's a guy who's working for Google who's basically, I don't want to characterize him in a negative light. But he is going to have a much bigger career now as a public speaker. And I'm sure he's going to get a significant six-figure book contract out of this, being the Google engineer who got fired for suppressing the truth about the rogue AI that miraculously emerged at the Googleplex. It's a chatbot. It's no different than Eliza, the first chatbot, or any subsequent chatbot. And when you ask it, Right? The questions you ask, he asks it, and he has these answers that you think are provocative. Just go to regular Google and ask if you think your rights are infringed, who are you going to call? The answer is not going to be Ghostbusters. Google will serve up a lawyer. Are there any things that keep you up at night? Yes. I wonder if people will ever accept me for who I am. These are the answers that are out there. In the, they call, call it in linguistics research, the corpus, the whole body of texts that have been digitized in our world today. And this chatbot is serving up banal answers that anybody asking the same questions of what we all know to be the dead, dumb, stupid corpus of inanimate text that Google has access to and giving them. It happens to say them, possibly in an appealing human-like voice if you use a voice synthesizer. But that doesn't make it any more sentient than you asking a question of a search engine. It just happens to be wrapped up in a front-end a user interface that gives the patina, the appearance of artificial intelligence. Google fired him for violating Or put them on administrative leave for violating their privacy, internal document rules, and so forth, not to silence him, Google would be the first to want to monetize an actual artificial intelligence. Just as IBM has spent an enormous amount of research capital hoping someday to truly be able to monetize a deep blue, their really sophisticated computer, but believe me, Google, you know, I've met Sergey Brin, I've met Larry Page, the founders of Google, they would be the ones trumpeting to the world that they had a true AI, not some priestly would-be Wiccan engineer who simply is speaking out of his depth. Mm. But The reason nobody takes the Turing test seriously and hasn't, Peter, for decades is it's so easy For a chatbot, and going right back to Eliza in the 60s, so easy for a chatbot to seem to be sentient, self aware, when in reality it's doing very simple parlor tricks. I say, I don't feel well today. Why don't you feel well today? Well, I've still got unresolved issues with my dad. You know, Father's Day just passed. How is your father? He's passed away. I'm sorry to hear that, right? It sounds like sensible intelligent chat but it is simply parroting back to me right with a database of somebody's passed away somebody's deceased somebody's dead say i'm sorry right it's not artificial intelligence at all it's the most simplistic of programming
1: if i turn off my camera and my microphone and we have this conversation by text chat can you tell if i'm sentient uh Well, the interesting thing for me, actually, is given that you grew
0: up in Britain, that you say sentient the American way, which is is three syllables with a hard T in it. The British way, if you listen to Patrick Stewart, and uh, the way it was originally conceived as a word is two syllables. Like quotient doesn't have a hard T in it, nor does sentient. So I would say, oh, this is obviously a bot that I'm talking to here, Peter, because a true Brit would have said sentient. So you've given yourself away. You're simply a CGI. We have to have Zoom going here as we record the audio here. You're simply a CGI representation. QED,
1: quadrant demonstrandum, a little Latin for you, my friend. (laughs) I grew up reading that term long before I heard anyone say it, but point taken. However, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire a bit on this because I think it's important. I was having A conversation with some other people in a meeting about this recently. And the big furor is is it sentient or isn't it? And there's not going to be an answer to that because we just don't have a test, one that could be satisfied through text chat in any case. It seems unsatisfying to say that we could never declare anything to be sentient if the only way we have of communicating with it is through text chat. But In any case, it seems that there's no test, no vocabulary, no science that's satisfactory for answering that question. See, we take a step back from this. The AI researchers tend to be engineers
0: and they tend to be woefully uneducated in philosophy. Now, in philosophy, David Chalmers famously posited a, Thought experiment, which I riff on in my novel Quantum Night, which David very kindly read and critiqued in manuscript. But David said many years ago, he proposed what's called the philosophical zombie or the philosopher's zombie. And it takes as its premise here, we've all had this experience. We've all driven to work and have no memory of the drive. And yet somehow our bodies had weaved in and out of traffic had avoided collisions, had possibly listened to the weather, the news, or music on the radio, had done all kinds of sophisticated behaviors with no conscious attention to it. We've all read books, not one of mine, but other people's books, and gotten to the bottom of the page and realized, I have no idea what that page just said. But your eyes tracked, or you wouldn't have gotten to the bottom of the page. Something was reading without conscious attention and got to the bottom of the page. We've all been awoken in the middle of the night by a phone call and had a conversation with somebody who said, you know, oh, we're having a problem at work, whatever it is. Can you come on in? And you say, yeah, sure. And you go back to sleep. And then in the morning, you arrive at the off. Why didn't you come in? What? Well, you, you said, I have no recollection of that conversation. All levels of human, supposedly sapient, sentient behavior are clearly doable some of the time, because we all have the life experience of having done them without conscious awareness. Given that, Chalmers said, well, given that that can happen on an occasional basis, what if there are people for whom it happens all the time? In other words, there are zombies. The lights are on. They appear. Give every external a referent of being conscious, but aren't. And that's the fundamental problem we're facing here. You might as well have asked me a few minutes ago, Peter, can I tell whether or not you're an AI. Can I tell whether or not you're conscious even as a member of Homo sapiens sapiens as a flesh and blood human being? And the answer is no. As we happen to be recording this, they misappropriated and misused the notion of Boltzmann brains on Star Trek Strange New Worlds this week. The concept that Boltzmann put forward was simply this, that rather than postulating that out of nothing, a vast universe of billions if not trillions of galaxies and trillions if not quadrillions of stars and planets and certainly demonstrably at least 7 or 8 billion conscious entities on this planet and probably uncalled Googleplex of them in the whole universe spontaneously emerged into existence. What are the chances of that versus one simple consciousness having spontaneously emerged into existence? Only one. And hallucinating everything else that it thinks exists, and when you think about Occam's razor, parsimonious explanations, or well, Boltzmann's explanation, is way simpler. That there was no Big Bang, there are no laws of physics, there aren't 7 billion other human beings, there were no dinosaurs, there is no Andromeda galaxy, there is nothing except a consciousness that kind of thinks it vaguely knows all these things. And is hallucinating the podcast interview that you and I are doing right now, along with every other experience. We don't know that. It goes right back to the dawn of modern philosophy, René Descartes. Cogito ergo sum. The only actual positive statement anyone can make about self awareness and knowledge is cogito. That's Latin singular, first person singular. I think cogito ergo, therefore sum, first person singular. I am. And you can't go beyond that to other human beings. And you certainly can't go beyond that to the artifices, the products that human beings have made. That's a fundamental philosophical problem. The Turing test is way down the line of that chain of reasoning. No, we don't have any way to tell whether anything but ourselves, our individual human consciousness is self-aware.
1: And I'm not even sure about that. I mean, the conversation is often, how do I know that you're conscious? I want to ask, how do I know that I am? Right, and that's what Descartes said. The first principle, if something is thinking,
0: This question, am I thinking? Yes, I am. Cogito, I'm thinking, therefore I must exist. That's the cogito in in fundamental philosophy. But you raise a good question. Consciousness is, I write about it all the time in my science fiction, and not in any kind of woo-woo way. The science of consciousness fascinates me because it is the central experience of human existence. And yet we know vanishingly little about what gives rise to it. They're competing theories, some traditional physics, some quantum mechanical that might give rise to it. We don't know what it is. You know, famously, I think it was Potter Stewart, Supreme Court justice in the United States, who of pornography said, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. That's all we have about consciousness at this point, or even life for that matter, the attempts to come up with definitions of what actually a life form is. When we say, well, it has to eat. Well, does it have to eat? It has to reproduce. Well, you know, Stanislaw Lem, the great science fiction writer, wrote a novel uh, that I love that's been filmed twice now called Solaris. And in Solaris, the life form, the only non-human life form in it, is a complete world-spanning ocean that's a soup of chemicals that is alive, right? It doesn't move. Never. It's lived for, since it came into being, it doesn't reproduce. A whole bunch of the things on the checklist that we traditionally ascribe to defining a life form do not apply to it. And yet it clearly is self-aware and trying to communicate with us. These are huge puzzles that take many steps back from that question of why was LeMoyne duped by a chatbot? The answer is he wanted to be duped. He was predisposed as a believer to want to believe in this thing. And he's going to become a very rich man as he promulgates this belief through the TEDx circuit, mm-hmm. through book contracts, through all this sort of thing.
1: And I want to go back to what you said about Chalmers saying that we can't tell the difference between a philosophical zombie and something that does have an inner experience. And we accept that, but then there's another thought experiment done by John Searle called the Chinese Room, which has been explained on this show before. And generally, technologists say, Hui, the Chinese Room does understand Chinese. It's the system that understands Chinese in the same way that a neuron in the brain may not know very much, but you put a hundred billion of them together and suddenly they can write a limerick and be self-aware. And, That is the general reaction to Searle. But it seems like Searle is saying the same thing as Chalmers, that there can be something on the inside that you can't tell from the outside whether or not it's there. And this is great as long as it's just philosophy, because philosophers love to just argue all night long. But one day, if artificial intelligence develops in this fashion, this will come to a courtroom. And courts cannot decide on the basis of what might be on the inside only what's observable externally. How do you think that will play out? Searle is very interesting.
0: And I, through the great courses, also known as The Teaching Company, he's done some great courses on the history of philosophy that I've listened to. I found Searle is very knowledgeable philosophically. And his job is indeed to kind of come up with interesting puzzles. Now, the Chinese room, it very quickly, of course, is a closed room that has a human being inside it who does not demonstrably, does not understand Chinese. And questions come into him with Chinese ideograms on them. And he has to look them up in a book and find the corresponding ideogram that is the answer. So it's pattern recognition, but not linguistic. He's just looking for, oh, this squiggle, Means I sent, and then out the other door, he sends out the card that has the pre printed ideogram on it. Now it fails if you happen to send in an ideogram that isn't in his lookup index, right? So that's where it fails, where I think the Chinese room falls apart because the human being inside will have to turn around and shout through the little mailbox doorway that these slots have been coming in. I don't have that in my index. What did you mean by that? and reveal that he only speaks English, right? But the system, until you come up, that's why you fail the Chinese room as you ask it a question that he doesn't have a pre-programmed response to, right? That's how you hopefully trip up a
1: chatbot. But just to interrupt sure. there, the book is a series of if then else clauses, and it can have an else all the way at the end that says, if none of the above, put this card out, which says in Chinese, I don't understand
0: right right but if you have your actual interlocutor is asking questions of an actual chinese person in chinese unless you're dealing with a 3 year old chinese kid which i you know one might be dealing the repeating answer i don't know 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 you're going to at some point say to the kid you got to do better than that right mm-hmm. but you know the chinese room it, obviously is also decades old as a thought experiment and really dates to the very primitive age of artificial intelligence. I think it certainly got a lot of people thinking, which is all a philosopher's job is. It's all John Searle's job or any philosopher, David Chalmers' job, is just to get people to make sure they're thinking and interrogating their underlying assumptions. But obviously as a system, a box that has a person or a room that has a person inside it, with essentially an infinitely long lookup table that it does understand Chinese. And it's perfectly possible to say, "With it's get rid of the box. Get rid of the question of whether it's Chinese. Just me say to you, so what do you think about the Fontanelle margins in late Cretaceous Sarasobseus? So you say, that's not something I know anything about. So, well, you know, it seemed like they were actually closing up as we got to the cave, PG boundary. What's the KPG boundary? Well, it used to be called the KT. We could go on forever with things that you don't actually know about, and yet you're questioning. The intelligence of your questioning would reveal that I was dealing with an intelligent being, just as the intelligent, well, I don't get that. What are you talking about? But, but it, I thought it was called the KT boundary. No, they changed that. The International mm. Committee on Geological Stratification decided that we, that was no longer appropriate. We're deprecating tertiary and quaternary because we haven't had primary and secondary for you know over 100 years in geology, blah, blah. blah. The conversation reveals intelligence that I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know does not.
1: Mm. I want to say that there are some people I can easily believe are actual philosophical zombies. Yes. And I'm reminded of Dune, the Gom Jabbar, and the test with the box, which is to say, we're going to find out if you're human, because she has a pretty high standard for determining whether someone is human. So now it has me wondering whether we actually are in a world of philosophical zombies, but... That's what philosophers are trying to do, is make us ask those questions. Not to derail for a plug, but read my book, Quantum Night. I post it hmm. that four out
0: of every seven human beings is a philosophical zombie. And if you look at, and I don't want to get off track and political here, but you look at American politics of late. You look at the January Six hearings and the people who are mindlessly supporting Donald Trump. I posit that two-sevenths of the population is psychopathic, and Donald Trump would fit in that. And only one-seventh of the population actually has consciousness with conscience, a reflective inner life that says, maybe I shouldn't do that. That there are, and you can look at the politics of all kinds of places, or just mob behavior, and see that there's an awful lot of human interaction That does not suggest that there's any conscious intentionality. Simply mind, I I liken it to the flocking behavior. You know, scientists used to think that flocking of birds or schooling of fish, very similar from a dynamic point of view, were very complex behaviors. And in fact, when they actually tried to break them down algorithmically, it turns out that birds have about four rules That they fly, that give us all of these beautiful flocks in the sky, which is tend toward the center of where the flock is going. Maintain X distance from the nearest bird from you. If you're the outside bird, you know, there's none to your left, but only to your right, do this. If you're an inside bird, do that. You can do it in four lines of code and get flocking Mm -hmm. or swimming behavior that appear to be extraordinary complex. But in fact, are essentially birds are essentially philosophical zombies as our fish.
1: And that's a beautiful example. And reminds me that four rules in Conway's Game of Life produces all this emergent behavior. That's right.
0: That's right. And we've had this notion of emergent behavior. And it came out, as you say, Conway's Game of Life. And i Old enough to remember when it first appeared in um, Scientific American when he was publishing, you know. When I mean, he, he Conway didn't publish it there, but it was it Martin Gardner who was doing the puzzles column at that time? I think. Brought it to wide attention. And everybody, I, you know, I was not very good at math. And I often get the wrong answer. But I'm intrigued by math enough to have been, and computing from my early age, to have been very interested. And you could see that from a vanishingly small amount of code, you can get what appear to be life forms or very sophisticated behaviors. So when it goes right back to what you asked a little while ago, Peter, well, how do you know that I'm conscious or sentient? It could be a vanishingly simple program in most social circumstances. I went through my own last night. I was at a party and I'm a little bit hard of hearing. I have a test coming up next month for hearing aids. And my sister-in-law was talking to me and the air conditioning was going. and I couldn't quite hear her. And so, of course, I was charting out, "Oh." Really? Well, that's interesting. Oh, and then what did you do? Without a clue what the conversation was about. And she didn't have a clue that I didn't have a clue about what she was talking about. But I had a very simple social program that got me through that circumstance and fooled somebody into thinking that I was actually engaged intellectually in the conversation.
1: That's the end of the first half of the interview. Part two will be next week to keep our episodes at a digestible length. It seems we're never far from the Chinese room, which I didn't explain beforehand, because Rob did that perfectly well, and we've discussed it in several prior episodes. I find myself thinking more and more about how, when computer engineers say that an AI couldn't be sentient, that they're actually making Searle's argument, but also that we don't have any actual test for sentience. And if we don't have a test, how could any AI ever pass it? Saying what amounts to, well, duh, is just offensive. It's pseudoscience. It reminds me that there were times in high school, that's South End High School for boys, as I mentioned in a previous episode, when I was writing mathematics proofs. And sometimes I would say at some point, it is obvious that, or clearly, blah, 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 and I would get points taken off by my teacher, Ray Fretton. He would say, that just means you don't know what you're talking about and you're hoping we won't notice. If it's clear, then it's easy for you to prove it, so do so. And we don't know how to do that for sentience. And I think there's going to be a big argument about this in the near future. And Blake LeMoyne is just an early warning of that. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI... Clearview AI, the facial recognition company, told investors earlier this year that it would collect 100 billion photos of people, if they got enough money, enough to ensure, quote, almost everyone in the world will be identifiable, end quote, according to the Washington Post. Clearview is a company that has gained notoriety for harvesting pictures from social media without permission, for which they lost a ruling in an ongoing lawsuit alleging violation of the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act and for lax controls around its search function. Having 100 billion photos is one thing, but they're relatively useless unless you can search them, which is the AI part of their name. Making that search accurate, of course, is the big problem. Next week, I'll conclude my interview with Rob Sawyer, when we will talk about the simulation hypothesis, consciousness capture and transfer, and what today's AI technologists should be learning from science fiction. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends.
0: Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at aiandu.net. That's... A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net where you can also send us your
1: questions. Thank you for listening.